Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. First Peter 3.15 says, some of you guys know what it says, always be ready, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have in Christ, to be an effective Christian witness. You need to know something of what you believe and why to be ready. You need to know what the good news is and uh, can share it. That's really helpful to know what you believe and why, what the gospel is, so you can share it. But at the same time, we all know, I think, the fears and frustrations of evangelism. Even just that word, evangelism, might spark feelings of fear and frustration. I think we, we know, us of who, who've tried to share our faith with other people, we know the frustration of sharing the gospel clearly with someone, and it's like, goes right over their head. Or that it's just a blank stare into nowhere, you know, and, and it just seems like it doesn't connect, and you're thinking, what's, what's going on here? Then there's the pain of rejection. Uh, not only does the good news not connect with them, they don't see it as good news, they, they actually take offense at it, and maybe they start to uh, distance themselves from you a little bit because of what you've shared with them, the gospel. It's experiences like this that uh, really start to hinder our witness. We, we stop witnessing. Actually, the new believer who is excited about his new life in Christ, he's born again, you know, and there's that excitement for about uh, 30 to 90 days, they say. Someone is born again and they're excited about it and they just want to tell everyone. And that excitement usually wears off or they experience, experience some opposition and, and then it, their, their witness is, is silenced. They stop sharing as much uh, after about 30 to 90 days. And so how do, how do we deal with this? I think we, we all struggle with evangelism, don't we? How do we deal with the frustrations and, and fears of evangelism? That's sort of what we want to look at today from the book of Acts, and it's important because uh, evangelism, sharing our faith in Christ with others, is a massive aspect of what it means to be a Christian. If you've become a Christian, you've experienced that new life in Christ, don't you want to share that with others? Yeah, we all do, I think. But then there's the fears and the frustrations that come in and hinder us. And so we're going to look at some vital lessons today from Acts that are going to help give us an enduring, strong, and courageous Christian witness. Okay, we're the real witnesses of Christ. Not the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They don't believe in Christ. They don't got Jehovah. 
Um, we're the real witnesses here. Don't be afraid of that word. Because uh, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Last time we were in Acts, it was in November. We were in Acts chapter 6. And uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is kind of like the theme verse and the outline for the entire book. Right there at the introduction, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. My witnesses both in Jerusalem, and then watch how this circle expands here. Jerusalem, then to Judea, the country area around Jerusalem, to Samaria, and even to the remote parts of the earth. So there's this ever-widening circle where there are going to be witnesses. And uh, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen that the Holy Spirit has come, just like Jesus promised. He came in Acts chapter 2, and as Ephesians 1.10 says, a new dispensation. Okay, that's a big word that just means uh, a new administration of God has come. God's doing something new, and it's called, uh, we call this the church age, the time that we're living in. Jesus coined that phrase, the time of the Gentiles. We're in the times of the Gentiles. Acts reveals there's a transition that, take, that is taking place in God's program from focusing on Israel and the Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, all the, all the sacrifices and all that stuff in the Old Testament, to now the focus is going to be on the church and New Covenant blessings. How, Acts reveals how we go from Israel and the Old Covenant to the church and the New Covenant blessings. And uh, that's a big transition, wouldn't you say so? Yeah, it's a huge transition. That's why we have the book of Acts. That's why God gave us the book of Acts. And that's why in the book of Acts, you'll see that God is doing exceptional, an exceptional amount and display of miracles, what Acts is going to call signs and wonders. He is, through these signs and wonders, affirming this transition in his program. Okay, that's a key truth to remember as we come back to the book of Acts. It's a transitional book. A lot of people get really confused when they look around at the world today and they see coronavirus and the hospitals are, you know, just like our money today, there's inflation, okay, (laughs) because there's such a high demand now that we, um, you know, basically isolated ourselves for a while now there's high demand there's inflation in our money there's inflation in our hospitals everywhere you look it's inflation okay there was an earthquake in the middle of the ocean back in march 2020 and that tidal wave finally hit okay well anyway where where was i going with that sorry God is going to affirm this, this transition. And a lot of people get confused when they look around. They see things taking place today uh, like, like coronavirus. And they wonder, why isn't God doing all these signs and wonders today? Why, how, come, how come when I read the book of Acts, I see all these signs and wonders, but I look around today and, and I, just, I just don't see it? And I, I believe, just as much as the charismatic, that an all-powerful, unchanging God is just as able to do just as able today to do what he did in Acts as he did back then. Don't you believe that? God is an all-powerful God. He, he, he's unlimited, right? God doesn't change. His power doesn't change. He could split the Red Sea today if he wanted to. The problem is God's program is changing. And so that's where a lot of the confusion comes from. God doesn't change, but sometimes his program does. And there's a huge transition taking place in Acts, and God is affirming that. This is a unique period. 
in the history of the church. It's the foundation of the church that's being laid through the apostles' teaching and miracles. And God is going to affirm their teaching with the signs and the wonders. And he's going to, and this is, this is big because if you're a devout Jew living in Jerusalem, like we're looking at in the book of Acts, you need to know, you need to have some sort of affirmation that Jesus Christ really is that Messiah before you let go of all that Old Covenant stuff and embrace Christ in the New Covenant. So uh, that's what we've seen so far is we're still in Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, the good news is to the Jew first, like Romans 1.16 says. And uh, that's where we're at. But um, strictly dealing with Jewish people. But Luke gave us a hint last time we were in Acts. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Look at this. He gave us a hint that things are about to change. We're going to move beyond Jerusalem and start moving to Gentiles, non-Jews. The good news is going to go to the non-Jewish people. Uh, like us. Uh, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so this is actually Luke's first of six summary statements in the book of Acts. He's summing up the Jerusalem era and uh, what's going to happen after this in chapter 7 is what's going to be this, this, the spark that makes the Christians scatter. And the gospel from there is going to go to the Gentiles, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and the spark that causes it is persecution, intensified persecution. We've seen the church deal with problems from within, hypocrisy and, and, and stuff like that within, but now, and we've seen them deal with persecution from without, right? they've taken the apostles before the council and tried before the council. Remember, the apostles have been thrown in jail, okay, but now, today, the first drop of blood is going to be shed for the name of Jesus Christ. And Stephen is going to become the first martyr in the Christian church. Okay? And that's what God is going to use to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. That's what we're going to look at today. Look at chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freemen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They, then they secretly in, induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous, blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So look, these are their charges. I've tried to highlight some of the charges and key words. They, they, blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council, the same council Jesus and the apostles have been before. And they put forth, forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. So now you've got the law of Moses, the temple, and God, those are the three charges he has against him. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. 
Okay, so first we're going to look at Stephen's ministry here in our outline. Stephen, you might recall uh, from last time, he was a guy who was chosen to serve tables. He kind of had this deacon-like position. Uh, He was a man that was full of grace and wisdom, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And it turns out he's actually not just good at serving tables. He's not just a good servant. He's He's a good preacher, too. Stephen is quite the preacher and teacher. God is with him. He's, a, he's allowing Stephen to do signs and wonders, just like the apostles, and that's pretty rare to see, but Stephen is actually one of those men outside of the 12 who can do signs and wonders. He's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and it's important to keep that in mind, his grace and, and, and him, him being full of faith. It's important to keep that in mind as he preaches, because Stephen is going to get real with these bureaucratic Pharisees, okay? And uh, you got to know at the end, he's not a red-faced, pulpit-pounding hothead. Stephen's a very gracious fellow, and he's, 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 he's uh, gracious and wise, full of faith in the Holy Spirit, okay? He's not, a, he's not pounding the pulpit with a red head and with a red face, okay? But just like a town might have many local churches today, Jerusalem had many different synagogues. Uh, and in these synagogues, you had different synagogues, just like local churches today, and they kind of attracted the same sort of people with the same, same backgrounds and preferences. And the synagogue that Stephen was involved with here that he was debating was called the, the Freedmen, the Synagogue of the Freedmen. It was a Hellenistic or, or Greek these were Greek Jewish slaves who had been freed. And we talked about Hellenism last time, and we have so much material today. I'm not going to go into depth on that. Uh, go to our last sermon in Acts and learn more about uh, these Greek, Grecian Jews. But Stephen is debating Christ with them from the Old Testament, and they, they're just no match for him. It says Stephen has, has wisdom that they just are unable to cope with. And what do you do when you can't win the debate? When you can't win a debate, what do you do? Right? You start a smear campaign. It's called the ad hominem approach. Can't beat them, smear them. Smear them. You start making up stuff about them. You start mis, uh, misinterpreting their words and basically misaligning everything about them. So anyway, they, they misrepresent his words and he goes on trial before that familiar Jewish council. And I'm sure you noticed, I really... Uh, neat description here. His face is described as angelic. Did you catch that? I'm sure you did. I'm guessing this is actually Paul's description of Stephen because we're going to learn that Paul is actually standing right there watching this stuff. Uh, he'll, hold the, he'll hold the coats of those who stone him by the end of chapter 7. And I think this is Paul's description given to Luke who's writing Acts and Paul literally cannot get this out of his mind. Paul can't forget Stephen's witness on this day, and we'll talk more about that later. But just like Moses' face, remember Moses when, when Moses went up to, to Mount Sinai and got the law from God, and he was exposed to the glory of God, and he came back down, do you remember why Israel was afraid of him? His face was glowing, because he'd been exposed to the glory of God, and he actually had to wear a veil over his face. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, here, same thing. Stephen's face has a divine radiance as he's preaching. 
this sermon here. And uh, it's a powerful, spirit-filled message to Israel, again, about new covenant truth. So it's kind of like Moses was, had a divine radiance with the old covenant to Israel. Now Stephen's talking about the transition to the new covenant, and he's got this divine radiance. It's kind of like a mild transfiguration, like when Jesus was transfigured, but it's just in his face. And uh, guys, uh, if, if my face starts glowing up here today while I'm preaching, okay, it's just a problem with the lighting and my balding that I got going on. It's just shiny, okay? Um, Stephen is soon going to be in glory by the end of this chapter, and that glory is just, it's like it's starting to shine through already. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, let's look at Stephen's message, though. Stephen's message is the longest recorded sermon in Acts. And it is incredible. We're going to go through it all, too. And, uh, Please don't worry, because we got a lot of verses, but we're going to get through it quick. I don't want the food in the kitchen to get cold either. Um, We're going to cover a lot of ground fast, and we're not going to get caught up in every detail, because then we would miss the the main point. I want to take this all as a unit and see the main point. On the surface, the sermon appears to just be a tedious recitation of Jewish history. And, but it's anything but that. It's just like anything you study in the Bible. It's like the more you study it, the more amazing it becomes to you. You realize this is a masterpiece, that only God could have written this, and only this sermon could have come from God through the Holy Spirit working in Stephen. And Stephen is going to respond to each of those charges that I mentioned really skillfully, showing how Christ is fully consistent with Old Testament revelation and uh, how the Jewish council is doing the same thing that their forefathers did. Basically, God sends them a deliverer, and they just, a divine deliverer, and Israel just continually rejects them. Kind of like the parable of the vineyard back in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. God sends a deliverer or something, a servant to, the, to Israel, and, and they just reject one after one, one after the other, and then the, you know, the son comes, and, and they say, let's kill him. And so that's kind of what's going on here. God faithfully sends divine deliverers to Israel, like Christ, that Israel consistently rejects. Okay, that's the major theme of his sermon. Uh, look at chapter 7, verse 1. And I, I, again, I, I, put, I emboldened some of these uh, critical aspects of his sermon in the notes. But the high priest said, Are these things so? Are these charges? Is this true what they're saying about you? And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land which I will show you. Because he's over in the Iraq area, that sort of area, and God's going to take him to the land of Israel. But then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country, Israel, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan in which you are now living. But he gave him, get this, no inheritance in it. Abraham didn't have any inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land. Aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, and whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge. 
said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Circumcision is going to come back up later. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Twelve patriarchs. And so here uh, what we see, if we were to outline Stephen's sermon itself, we would see him addressing the first charge right here, the blasphemy against God. Okay, uh, he, he, look at how respectful he is in addressing his brethren and his fathers. He's, he's associating himself with the Jewish brethren. He's saying, I'm, I'm orthodox, I'm one of yours. Okay, I have, uh, I have the same God, the God of Israel. He's the God of glory. The God of glory. He's all about God's glory. Don't miss that, because the glory of God's going to come back up again too. Okay, they have the same father in the faith, Abraham. He's part of the same covenant. I too have, have the circumcision. I'm part of the same covenant. And yet, get this, the father of their faith, Abraham, he's pointing out, never actually owned what he was promised. The father of the faith did not own, did not, uh, own what he was promised. And his descendants actually lived in a foreign land. Which land? Egypt. For 400 years. And was mistreated. It's pretty typical of God's people to be mistreated. This, this is going to go somewhere, guys. Great, the great Abraham, the father and the founder of the Jewish faith, wasn't connected much to the land himself. And God promises to judge those who mistreat his people. Stephen's about to be mistreated. That's where we're going with that. But look at, chapter, uh, or we'll look at verses 9 through 10. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him. Into Egypt. There's Egypt again with Joseph. Jealousy. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Rescued, favor, governor. What Stephen is going to do here is he's going to draw some parallels between the patriarchs and Christ. And how basically what they went through pointed to what Christ would go through. It's kind of like typology. You guys know what typology is? These Old Testament patriarchs are like a type of Christ. And I'm, I'm pretty careful when it comes to typology. I don't use typology unless the Bible says to. So, because uh, there's guys out there who'll just make a type of Christ out of anything in the Bible. You know, and so you got to be careful and just use the typology that the Bible says is a type. And that's what's going on here. Uh, he's going to draw parallels between Joseph and Moses and Jesus. And he, Stephen's never going to directly mention Jesus' name, and I don't think he has to, uh, because they're so well-versed in the Old Testament, they pick up on what he's saying here. It might take us a couple times of reading through this sermon to actually understand what's going on. But uh, another reason maybe why he never gets to the application of applying it to Christ uh, directly is because he's stoned to death. They don't let him finish it because they know exactly what he's saying to them. But uh, anyway, Joseph, Moses, and Jesus all had to be rescued. They were all favored by God. They found favor with God. And they were all given a place of authority, position of power. And as God's deliverers, divine deliverers, they were all misunderstood and unrecognized the first time by their Jewish brethren, but recognized the second time 
by their Jewish brethren. So the deliverer comes to them once, unrecognized, mistreated, comes to them twice, they recognize him. Okay. Um, let's look at, that's, well, think about that a little bit more here. Israel doesn't recognize Christ as their Messiah in his first coming, do they? They don't recognize him. And they're actually quite jealous of him, and they say, we won't have this man reign over us. They don't want him, so they reject him. But prophecy records Israel is going to accept him at his second coming. They rejected him the first time. They're going to accept him at the second coming. That's where all this is going. Look at verse 11. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. Here's the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known. You guys remember that story? They didn't recognize him the first time. Joseph didn't reveal himself, but they come back. Joseph reveals himself. He makes himself known to his brethren. That's exactly what's going to happen with Christ and Israel. Uh, And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Second visit. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. And so uh, one of the things you're going to notice here, one of the themes is that God is working in unconventional ways. He uses the evil and he uses the rejection of the divine deliverer for something good. Remember, God's hand is with Joseph. Even when Joseph's rejected, he's put in prison. He goes through a lot of hardships. His 11 brothers initially reject him out of jealousy, but God actually uses them later to deliver and restore his Jewish brethren. Remember, what you guys intended for evil, God meant for good. When you see evil and things going on in the world today and you wonder what's up with that, just know Genesis 50-20, God can use evil for Good. That's what's going on here. Uh, Verse 17 begins the second charge, the blaspheming of the law in Moses. I thought I had that up there. Maybe I don't. Yeah, I must have missed that slide this morning. Sorry. Blaspheming the law in Moses. Look at verse 17 here. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race, the Jewish people. And he mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Remember when Pharaoh told them to do that? Expose your infants, kill all the male children. What happened with Jesus when he was born? Herod, kill every male under two years old. Okay, same thing going on with Jesus there. Um, Abortion by exposure is what he's talking about here, though. It was at this time Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, basically abortion by exposure, exposure, put in the Nile River, Pharaoh's daughter took him away. She rescued him and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians and was a man of power in words and deeds. Who else was a man of power in words? Man of power in word and deed. Joseph. 
Jesus. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Here's the first visit of Moses to his brethren. And when he saw one of them being, mistre- being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. Remember when Moses did that? I'm, I'm your deliverer, guys. God's appointed me to this position so that I can deliver you. But what's it say there in verse 25? They did not understand. They didn't understand his first coming to them. Moses actually has to go to Midian for 40 years, and the second time he comes back, they say, oh yeah, you're the guy. Right? Uh, On the following day, he appeared to them. They were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us, Moses? You don't mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. And so uh, Moses goes away for a while. Who else goes away for a while after his first coming? Christ. Isn't this like, this is blowing my mind here. (laughs) The, The typology between Joseph and Moses and Christ. Jesus goes away for a while to another place, heaven, right? And he's going to return, and he's going to be recognized by his brethren. Uh, Anyway, uh, let's look at um, verse 30 here. Remember all of this? Uh, Jesus, just like Joseph and Moses, they're all reared in a foreign land, not in Israel. Although they were the divine deliverers of their Hebrew brethren, they're not initially understood to be so. Let's pick it up in verse 30. After 40 years had passed, you guys ever been through this much scripture before at once? This is the most of the Word of God I've ever been through in a lesson. There's like 60-some verses, and it's awesome. Uh, what the Word of God has to say, can I remind you, is more important than anything I have to say. It's more important that we read the Word than what I have to say. Uh, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning thorn bush. God appears to Moses in a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he approached to look more closely, there came a voice from the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground out in the wilderness, guys, by a burning bush. Remember that, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans and I have come to rescue them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they disowned, rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out performing signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Who do you think that prophecy is referring to? Christ. Who else did signs and wonders? Christ. Who else had favor? Christ. Who else is a rescuer, savior, and deliverer? Christ. 
Look at these similarities here. This is unreal. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he received the living oracles to pass on to you. Notice again, all this has taken place outside of Israel. This will, I hope to, we'll, we'll come to a summary here soon. But even in a, a bush in the wilderness, even a bush in the wilderness can be holy ground if God is uniquely present there. The council that Stephen is standing before, that Jesus stood before, that the apostles stood before, they thought that God was with them. You remember that? They think God is with them because they have the land. They're in the land. They have the law. And they have the temple. Because of that, they think God is with them. Is God with them? What Stephen is going to tell them is, these things are special. These are part of the promise. We are a blessed Jewish people. But you, council, have taken these things way too far. You should not conclude that the law and the temple are the end of God's presence or his revelation. Because look in the past. God has worked all these other things outside of Israel, outside of his temple. He, he worked even before the law was there. See, see, there's always been further revelation expected. There's always been this ultimate prophet that was expected to come to be the fulfillment of all of that, those things, of the law, of the temple. And so... Stephen's saying, look guys, Moses said someone was going to come who was going to do these signs and wonders and who was going to usher in this, basically fulfill all of these things. And, and you guys missed it. You missed it. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's what Jesus said to them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kills the prophets you didn't recognize the time of your visitation they didn't recognize him the first time look how stephen honors the word of god too remember he's he's addressing the charge of blaspheming the law and moses and stephen's saying look i'm paying attention to what moses said moses said jesus was coming and, and he also honors the word of God by calling it the living oracles what a what a way to describe god's word living oracles i like that the word of God is the living word that brings life. I found Christ by reading his word. The word of God is living and active, isn't it? It pierces us and changes us. It transforms us. This council wasn't paying attention to the living oracles that God gave to Moses. Stephen was. Anyway, God comes to their rescue again and again. He appoints a divine deliverer and ruler, but they don't recognize it. This is what uh, he goes on to say, verse 39 of chapter 7. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. Who's that? Moses. But they repudiated him in their hearts, and they turned back to Egypt. Do you remember that? As soon as they get across the Red Sea, they're like, let's go back to Egypt where life was comfortable and easy. And we ate vegetables and stuff. Now we just eat this man all the time. It was just whiny. And it's, it's like as soon as they got over there, what'd they do? They built a calf, a golden calf, and started to worship it. 
That's what he gets into here. They said to Aaron, make for us gods who are going to go before us. Because Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days or so. And down below, Aaron's making a golden calf. He's collecting all their jewelry, melting it down. And he says, oh, I, I, this, this calf accidentally happened to Moses. You know. uh, make for us gods who are going to go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. He's been gone 40 days. And at that time, they made a calf and bought brought a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices for 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Rampha, these false, false gods, the images which you made to worship. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. Babylon, And so, just as the Israelites, they thrust Moses aside, their rescuer and deliverer, they, they thrust him aside, and in their hearts turned back to bondage in Egypt. So the council, so the Jewish leaders had thrust Jesus aside. You catch that? They cast Moses aside, their fathers did, now they're casting Jesus aside the ultimate deliverer. And they're going to return back to their bondage under the law. They're going to reject Christ's work on the cross, which is sufficient to pay for their sins, and instead, they're going to try and keep the law, the works of their hands, to try and get right before God. They're going to reject Christ's work for the work of their hands. They have an idol called tradition. They're keeping the traditions, yes, but they don't actually have God. In fact, by this time, they've replaced the living oracles with all of their, their Mishnah. You guys ever heard of that? For every law in the Old Testament law, they had several new laws on top of that to keep from breaking those laws. And so they weren't even following the Word of God anymore. They were following their catechism is what they were doing. They didn't have God anymore. All they had was tradition. They didn't have a relationship with God. And it was all man-made rules that they were following. They had the idol of the temple. Now the temple's their idol. They're over-venerating this temple. And they saw it as an end in itself. They weren't seeing Christ as the fulfillment of all of that. And so Stephen's theology, man, <laughs> is miles ahead of where these guys are at. Miles ahead. And Stephen's sermon here is like the first preview of Paul's theology and the first preview of the book of Hebrews here, if you're familiar with that. But let's look at the third charge. Stephen uh, addresses the third charge, blaspheming the temple. He, he, he says, guys, you've got to realize you're, you're over-venerating this temple. God's presence is not, is not with you as you think it is, and he's not constrained to the temple. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. He's, he's just talking about the, the tabernacle, not the testimony, or not the temple, the tabernacle. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Josh, Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And David found favor. There's that word favor again. David found favor in God's sight 
and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So Solomon, his son, actually ends up building the temple. And so what Stephen's doing is he's pointing out that it wasn't the temple that God commanded to be built, that they're over-venerating. What did God command to be built? The tabernacle. So when the temple's actually built by Solomon, and the one in the picture there is actually Herod's temple. Solomon's was destroyed by the Babylonians. But uh, it, was a, it was a wonder of the world in itself. Unbelievable structure. But uh, when that temple was built, basically God only allowed it. God didn't say, build me a temple. God said, build me a humble tabernacle, like a, this tent-like structure down here. He didn't say, build this. He just allowed that one to be built. And, 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 and so he's saying, look, uh, God blessed David when the tabernacle existed. Even, and, and even when the, the temple was built, Solomon built it, and the first thing he does when he's sort of uh, going to cut the ribbon on this temple and open it up for use, Solomon says, look, Lord, you're, you're, this temple cannot contain your presence because you're the Lord of all creation. Solomon acknowledged that God's presence was not contained in this temple. However, he says in verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool for my feet. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? What place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Do you know God created the entire universe and it's like the span of his hand? Where's God going to, you know, you going to build a house for him? The universe can't contain him. Okay. Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. He's calling them betrayers and murderers. And they are, because Jesus Christ was innocent. He was perfect. You have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet have not kept it. And so, in Christ-like fashion, Stephen takes the charges that are on him, and he turns them back around on the council. He's saying, you guys are the ones who are hardened to God. You guys are the ones who, who misunderstood his, his word, his law. You, you, you're not paying attention to Moses and the prophecies. Right? You, you're not living by faith like Abraham did. You're living by works. You think that your own goodness and your own righteousness and your own religious works can make you good enough to get to heaven. You think that just because you're a Jew, you're good enough to go to heaven. He's saying, look, it's by faith. It's by faith in what Jesus Christ has done. You can never be good enough, and that's why Jesus Christ had to come and die. Amen? He is the perfect sacrifice. And it's by grace through faith in him that we are saved. And that's it. You ain't getting into heaven any other way. You get to heaven before God, you stand before God, and he says, why should I let you in here? If you say anything other than what Jesus Christ did on that cross, you are wrong. You're dead wrong. You cannot get into heaven by being good enough. You can't get into heaven by getting baptized, doing religious works. If you could, Jesus Christ did not have to come and die for you. 
If you believe that you're going to get into heaven by your own goodness and your religious works, you're trampling on the Son of God and His cross and saying, what was the use of that? What was the point of all that? Don't trample on the Son of God by thinking you're better. You can be good enough. We're all sinners. We all fall short. And it's only by His grace and what He's done on the cross that we're going to get into heaven, guys. That's it. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be self-willed. Don't think you're, you're going to do this on your own. That's what, that's what Stephen's saying here. He's not saying you guys need a chiropractor for your stiff necks. You guys just need to be adjusted. He's saying you guys are self-willed. You're stubborn. You're unbending. The Word of God isn't penetrating your heart. Uncircumcised in heart means they're in unbelief. They're not believing. God... God didn't have their hearts. Does God have your heart this morning, guys? Is the, are the living oracles penetrating your heart this morning? Does he have your heart? He didn't have their heart. These guys, they were the most religious people around. They're walking around with fancy robes and the, the tall hats and the, the golden scepters, probably. They don't have God. They've got their traditions. They've got their circumcision externally. But in reality, they are unresponsive to the living oracles. They're unresponsive to the revelation of Christ and what Christ has done for them. And Jesus said, true worshipers aren't going to be worshiping in that temple very long, are they? He said they're going to be worshiping where? In spirit and in truth. You don't have to come to the church, you know, throughout the week to pray in this in this. This is not this is a kind of an auditorium, okay? This is not this is not like the temple. You can worship in a John Deere tractor out in the field in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worshiper that God desires. I mean don't forsake the meeting together here, but you know, I want you to understand there's nothing particularly special about this place. You're special if you got the Spirit of God in you. You're the temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in in the church age. God's presence is in you. And he wants your heart. He doesn't just want externals. Let's look at Stephen's martyrdom here, lastly. Stephen's martyrdom. When they heard this, this is verse 54, they were cut to the quick, and they did what? They repented. And No, no they didn't. That's what they did. They began gnashing their teeth at him. It's like they're just preparing themselves for eternal torment where there's gnashing of teeth. But being full of the Holy Spirit... He gazed intently, Stephen gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God. There's the glory of God again. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears. Stephen's preaching and they they go like this. They plug their ears and they rush at him to drag him off and stone him. Why is that? Because faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And there's Jews today that'll do the same thing. You start preaching in a Jewish area, boy, they, 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 they'll call the police to get sirens going and come in anything to drown out the preaching because they know faith comes by hearing. 
Same thing happens today all the time. And they rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know Saul, don't we? Paul, when they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, that's a lot like Christ, isn't it? Don't, don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what they do. Having said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. His body fell asleep, but obviously he went with Jesus Christ at that moment, just like that. He went to where Jesus was. And on that day, here's another transitional statement. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's the surrounding area, except for the apostles. And so just what Stephen was preaching about, the glory of God and the rejected Christ, who, who's the one who's been promoted to power and authority, that's exactly what Stephen sees as he's being stoned to death. He actually sees the rejected Christ in authority. He sees his rescuer. And it reaffirms to us that the way to God is not through the temple and the tradition and the works, not through the religion, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. God just affirms what Stephen is saying in his, in his sermon. Jesus is usually seated at the right hand of God, right? But what's he doing here? He's standing. He's standing. Why is he standing? I think he's standing to welcome Stephen, the first martyr into heaven. He's going to honor Stephen and welcome him home and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You, you want a goal to strive for in life? Strive for that, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let that be your goal. In a moment like this, I think, and just, just let's bring this into our world today here a little bit. Let's, let's, let's not let this be head knowledge like Daryl prayed. Let's, let's apply this to our hearts, okay? If that happened in Shadron, Nebraska, what would you do? Preacher in town <laughs> gets stoned to death. Sorry, might be me in this illustration. Preacher in town gets stoned to death. What are you going to do the next day? You going to go underground and hide? You might be forced to scatter, but are you going to are you going to stop preaching and teaching the word of God and sharing the gospel with people? The Christians in the book of Acts don't do that. It says they just keep on proclaiming boldly the name of Christ wherever they go. They keep on preaching and teaching the word of God with courage and endurance. And why is that? Well, I thought of a few reasons from our passage here. Number one, his presence. You want a strong, enduring Christian witness. Remember his presence. Remember that he is with you. He said he was going to be with these people, these disciples, to the end of the age. Remember that? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When you're evangelizing, remember Christ's presence with you and in you. Even though Stephen is being persecuted, Jesus is fully aware of it, is he not? He is fully aware of it, and he stands ready to reward Stephen for his faithful witness. Guys, heaven is not some far-off, distant place at the end of the universe. Heaven is more like in uh, another 
uh, frequency is the word I'm looking for. Heaven's more just like another frequency that we just can't see. If God would just open our eyes, I bet we'd see angels with us. We'd see angels where we go. Good ones and bad ones. It's like another frequency, like a radio frequency that we just can't hear or see. Heaven's right there. It's not, he's not far off. He sees us. He knows exactly what's going on. And when, when Jesus actually confronts Saul later on, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus takes it personally when his church is persecuted. Remembering his presence helps us to, to endure. Secondly, remember his power. Remember his power. When we go to witness... You, when you go to share the gospel with someone, you can't rely on yourself at all. You can't rely on yourself. You've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Remember, we're in a spiritual battle with the spiritual forces of wickedness that are very powerful themselves. We cannot, we cannot witness on our own. We've got to rely on the Holy Spirit. We're going into conversations with people prayerfully, relying on Him for the words and the power. And whatever happens, we leave the results with Him. Because he's got the power to grow that seed that we plant. Uh, thirdly, remember his story. His story. When we're witnessing to somebody, we're sharing the gospel, we've got to realize this is not about us. This is about God. This is about his story. If we make evangelism about us, guys, we're going to stop sharing our faith as soon as fear or frustration strikes. If it's about me, I'm not going to share the gospel. I'm just not. Because it's too awkward, right? It's weird. It can be weird. It can be hard. It can, be, it can bring rejection. So we got to be making sure that we're living for not just our story, but his story. And that's what Stephen was doing this day. Our stories only make sense when they're lived in connection with his story. Our stories only make sense when they're lived in connection with his, with his story. Even persecution has a lot of value when it's connected to his story. And so the question's like, what if I get rejected again? What if they think I'm weird? They're irrelevant when you're focused on God's story because I tell you what, you're not gonna think that when you get to heaven or if they were to suddenly pass away and you didn't get the chance to share with them. You're not gonna say, what if, what if I'm glad I didn't ask that question because I'm glad I didn't ask them about the gospel because uh, I would have got rejected or they would have thought I was weird. No, rejection's worth it because every now and then, and we have to get used to being rejected. This is part of sharing the gospel. Uh, the way to the life is narrow. The broad road leads to destruction. More people are gonna, just going to take the broad road. Uh, but every now and then, guys, the gospel does connect with somebody. And they do find new life in Christ. And there's nothing like being the instrument that God uses to bring them eternal life. And i got to see that happened recently because some, one of our, our church members here is in connection with someone. And uh, anyway, they asked if I would come and share with them too. And they said this person was pretty anxious all the time, you know. They, had, they were dying of cancer. And their knuckles were just like this all the time. And they're just anxious to die. They didn't know where they were going. And I, I didn't go into this meeting with this person overprepared. I just... I just said, Lord, I'm depending on you. Give me the words. Help me know where this person is at. And, and, and after talking to them, I asked them questions to find out where they're at. 
and then began to pick up what I needed to share with them. And we went back to Genesis 3, and we went to Christmas, and we went to Easter, and said, you understand these things. Okay. And, and by the end of that conversation, it was like, the, I knew the gospel just connected. There was a, a new twinkle in their eye. And, and from there on out, it was like the anxiety just wasn't there anymore. They had peace, assurance. And there's nothing like being the person that God uses to, to, to bring that hope to someone's life. Don't miss out on moments like that because you're afraid of being rejected. Okay? Lastly, think about his timing. This account shows us that you can have the most exemplary Christians preaching the most spirit-filled gospel presentations that cut right to the heart and people still won't believe. Think of that. However, that doesn't mean that the seed that you planted won't grow after a while. We plant and we water, but who causes the growth? God. It's up to God to grow that seed that you plant. You can't do a thing about it except plant it and water it and pray that he'll grow it. I think Stephen's witness actually pricked Saul's conscience this day after day after this. Remember, Saul was hardly in agreement with putting Stephen to death. But when Jesus confronts Paul later on in the book of Acts, Jesus is going to say, Paul, it's pretty hard for you to kick against those go-ads day after day, isn't it? I think Paul knew Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and he could not get Stephen's witness out of his mind. Stephen's witness was powerful. And Stephen, this day, just imagine if he would have caved and said, he denies Christ. How awful would that have been? But Stephen doesn't do that. Stephen is sowing seeds in his predecessor, Saul. And Saul's going to become the greatest missionary ever. And so this tells us that just because someone doesn't believe immediately doesn't mean they won't eventually. You see, we have no idea what God's going to do with the seeds that we plant. We don't know when he's going to cause those puppies to sprout. You never know. So we got to trust God's timing when we're sharing the gospel. Don't pressure people. Just share it clearly. Let them know Christ paid for their sins. They can be saved by grace through faith in Him. Don't try to pressure people. Just, just try to explain it clearly and trust God to grow that seed in His time. This account shows that even when times appear dark, God is still working in unconventional ways to use evil or rejection for good. Thank you.